You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with David Linden, who is a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University. And also, he is at the Kavli Neuroscience Discovery Institute, which covers a lot of different ground, but has a deep interest in neuroscience. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. I should have mentioned also that you're the author of, of many books. Most recently, this one, it's called Unique, The New Science of Human Individuality. And then prior to that, you wrote a book called Touch, The Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. We also have this one, The Accidental Mind, How Brain Evolution Has Given Us Love, Memory, Dreams, and God. I think that whoever helped you come up with that title was a marketing genius. And then also one I don't have here, which is The, the Compass of Pleasure. So David, I mean, neuroscience is a field which in the last couple of decades has become pretty sexy and there's MRI studies for this and MRI studies for that. And everybody's interested in, you know, what part of the brain corresponds to what and so forth. But I think your interests are much broader than narrow neuroscience. And this most recent book, Unique, is kind of the latest foray into an age-old debate, one that started with the pre-Socratics back in ancient Greece and which you refer to as kind of the nature-nurture debate. You know, they referred to it as kind of the nomos fusis debate. And you say that we don't have a better term for it, and you're critical of, of those phrases, nature-nurture. But every year, it seems like we have discoveries which help us to learn more about what makes us who we are as individuals. So what attracted you to this topic? Why did you decide to write a book on the science of human individuality? And how did it grow out of your interest in neuroscience? I think in neuroscience, we are at least kind of neuroscience we do in my lab. We're mostly studying critters like rats and mice. And we're not mostly concerned with them as individuals. We go to great lengths to get rid of their individuality. For example, most of the experiments we do on rats and mice are from highly inbred strains that are nearly genetically identical. And in addition, we tend to do experiments on a large number of animals and then take the average and the standard deviation of that. And in so doing, really obliterate the issue of individuality. Very rarely do you see in a study where you have a range of values coming from an animal experiment that someone will say, what's going on with this mouse that's really out of range here? And how did they wind up that way? That very rarely becomes the, the question of interest in the investigation. So I feel like my own field of neuroscience is, has really, in many ways, ignored or diminished the issue of individuality in critters or in humans, which is what we mostly care about. For me, this was a bit of a busman's holiday because most of the book is about genetics and I'm not a geneticist. And, you know, on the one hand, you could say, like, why are you writing a book is about something when you're really not an expert in it? I'm 80% of an expert in it. And that is, I know enough biology to 
read these papers and be critical of them. And I know enough biology to ask for help for the people who really are from the people who really are the genuine experts. And it's just more fun also to write about something that you don't already know about because then you get to learn new stuff and think about new ideas. And I don't work on touch, even though I wrote a book on touch. I don't work on reward, even though I wrote a book on reward and pleasure. So I actually prefer to write about things that are not dead center in my own research areas, which include things like memory and recovery of function after injury. Yeah, and I think a uh, wide-ranging intellect like that often is able to see things that people in the trenches you know, might not even see, or at least they don't see how cool it is or how interesting it is and how applicable it might be to insights outside of their discipline. So I, I certainly enjoy reading books by, by people who are processing adjacencies and then interpreting it. And it's a very funny thing. When you're writing as a working scientist, you... Particularly in my position, you're in this funny intermediate land because you're not quite the expert, because I would be if I were writing about topics that I actually work on. So I'm not quite the expert. I'm close to the expert, but I'm not a journalist either. In other words, I don't have any obligation to keep my own feelings about an issue under wrap and just tell it straight and say, oh, this side says this, but that side says this. No. I form an opinion as a near expert, and then I make the case for it. And I might mention the arguments against it, but I'm clearly selling a point of view everywhere in all of my books. And I think that's what people expect when they buy a book from a working scientist. They're not expecting something that reads like, you know, reading the science section of the New York Times. Well, I expect that your, your interest in kind of this source of individuality stems in part from your work with neuroplasticity and the flexibility of memory and how different life trajectories can lead to very different mental landscapes, psychological landscapes, neural landscapes. Yeah, very much does. I would say there, there are several things that brought me to the topic of individuality. The first one is that I grew up as the son of a psychiatrist an old-fashioned psychoanalyst lie on the couch and tell me about your problems and your dreams, a psychotherapist. And my father never breached confidentiality about the identity of patients, of course. But, you know, we would have dinner every Wednesday night in a restaurant, and he would always tell me all the stories about what was going on. And he said, you can't have preconceived ideas and put people in slots. You have to treat everyone individually because no one is, you know, exactly categorized into A, B, or C. You're absolutely right that my work on neuroplasticity is a big part why I'm interested in individuality because the way that we accrue memories, both the memories we can recall and subconscious memories are important for forming us as individuals. And the third thing has to do with a colleague of mine named Jeremy Nathans, who is a neurogeneticist, a very terrific and well-known scientist. And one of my other books is called Think Tank, and it's a collection of essays by working neuroscientists, 40 different scientists contributed to this. And Jeremy wrote a very nice five-page article on human individuality. And I got so fired up by this because he did such a good job that I thought, there's so much more to say here. This could be a great topic for a book. 
Now, if we go back into psychology in the early 20th century, where it was dominated by the Freudians, right? Biology played a very little, very small role in kind of what was then mainstream psychology. And I think it's safe to say now that, you know, the tables have turned almost completely in the other direction. You know, biology is at the heart of all psychology. And within biology, there's increasing infatuation with genetics, right? So as even in, in the lay environment, everybody is sending off their spit to 23andMe. I've done this. Ancestry, I've done this. But as you point out that even when you have these identical mice coming into the lab, they exhibit these different traits, that they have different behavioral traits. There's variety, there's dispersion, which highlights that genetics is certainly a very powerful explanatory tool, but is really only part of the action. Or at least, let's say, heritability is only part of the action, and the people fail to make a distinction between genetics and heritability. Heritable traits, what you get from your parents, the heritability, heritable portion of traits varies enormously trait by trait. So there are very few human traits that are 100% heritable. And the one example that I like to use is earwax type. So all humans have one of two types of earwax, wet or dry. Yeah, this is exciting, but it actually kind of is cool. In 23andMe, they, I discovered that I'm not, not afraid of people who chew loudly. That was the great insight that I got from 23andMe. That apparently, there's a gene that makes you uh, dislike loud chewing noises. <laughs> yeah, I'd be a little skeptical of that assertion. I, I don't know any of the details of that, but my bullshit detector is going off right now. Is like, but, uh, so earwax type. So earwax type is controlled by a single gene. It's called ABCC11, which is a stupid name. But ABCC11 is a uh, transporter that moves salts across membranes. And when you move salts, water follows through water channels called aquaporins. And so as a result, you can imagine that variations in this gene that make it the, the protein that it, this transporter of salt work either more or less efficiently can then give you wet or dry earwax. Now, so is it then fair to say, well, ABCC11 is the earwax type gene? No, because it turns out that this gene is present all over your body. It's not just in the cells that line your ear canal that make the earwax. It's all over. As a matter of fact, some people have evidence that the wet earwax gene is associated with a higher incidence of breast cancer in women. So it's not just the earwax gene, even though variation in it contributes, entirely accounts for the trait of wet or dry earwax. And the other end of the scale, you got to trait your speech accent. I'm not talking about qualities of your voice, like it's high or low pitched or resonant or reedy or nasal. That stuff does have partly heritable aspects, but your speech accent is entirely determined by who you hear growing up, and mostly actually not your parents, surprisingly. Mostly your peers, which is why, for example, that the kids of immigrants sound like the country where they were reared, not like their parents' country, because they didn't entirely imprint on their parents' voices. So speech accent is the other end of the scale. You got 100% heritable for earwax and 0% heritable for speech accent. But of course, most human traits, either physical traits or behavioral traits, lie somewhere in the middle. So a trait like height is one of the most heritable human traits that there is. In the United States, 
about 80% of the variation in height is heritable. And that's a lot. But does that mean that height is controlled by a height gene like or a small number of genes? No, it turns out that there's over a thousand, maybe even two over two thousand genes that contribute to height. And by and large, mostly each gene contributes a tiny little bit to height. So it's called a polygenic trait as a result. Many genes, each pitching in, and it's not just pitching in, it just doesn't add up like in an Excel spreadsheet in a column. The different gene variants can interact with each other in ways that are kind of nonlinear and non-predictable. But in any case, height is a trait that is highly heritable, but determined by small variation in a very large number of genes. And when I say a thousand genes, you should think that's in comparison to only 19,000 genes that we have in our genome. So that's a big, that's a big chunk of genes that contribute to height. And when you look at the list of them, some of them make sense. Like, oh, this one controls the growth of bones. This one controls the growth of cartilage. Yeah, I get it. And then you look at a lot of them, you go, what is going on here? I have no idea why this gene would contribute to height. And it would take a whole lot of work to find out. And, you know, for some of the people are working on it, but a lot of them, you know, there's just not enough people to care about that. Yeah. So I like how you use the term heritability and steer the conversation a bit away from genetic versus non-genetic. Because most, many, so many genes are like functions, right? If then functions rather than direct correlations with specific behaviors or attributes. And you tell the story about how the Japanese uh, military discovered this, right? I don't know that wasn't probably the only source of discovery, but it was a story that I'd never heard before, which had to do with the sweating and thermoregulation. Was that like an actual discovery that led to this line of inquiry, or was that just one of many discoveries that there were? That's one of many things, but I think what you mentioned a moment ago, which is absolutely crucial to understanding variation in traits, is that you can have genetically identical siblings, right? So they have the same genome, they lay right next to each other in the womb, they're born, and at the moment they're born, they're already different before any experience has accrued at all. So there is a mystery. Why shouldn't they be just the same? So you can study this as an identical twin humans, and people have, but people really like to study this in nine-banded armadillos because nine-banded armadillos are born as identical quadruplets. Every pregnancy in a nine-banded armadillo is identical quadruplets. So you take the quadruplets out, And let's say you sacrifice them and you dissect them and you look at their organs. One might have a spleen that's 50% larger than the others. One might have a liver that's 30% smaller than the others, right? You know, very basic stuff. And any parent of monozygous twins, but not really identical twins, will tell you that they have different personalities from the moment they're born. When they arrive, they're already different. And usually they're not perfectly identical in physical ways, too. You can tell them apart when looking at them, if you're, if you're attentive. If you put them in a scanning machine, you can see that their organs aren't identically sized or in the identical place or have the identical shape. So how does this variation come about? And the answer, I think, is really cool. And the answer is that the genome doesn't provide a precise cell-by-cell blueprint for building the baby. 
it provides approximate instructions. So rather than saying, you know, neuron number, you know, 1,702,003, emit your axon, your information sending in, and you grow three millimeters towards the top of the head and then cross the midline and then grow out towards the ear and stop. And your sibling neuron there gets a different instruction. No, instead, there are these, these kind of vague instructions that'd be like, hey, you pool of neurons over there, grow up about this much, and then you can think about turning across the midline and, you know, it's okay. And so what happens is if you look like in one identical twin, you might have a particular class of fibers sending information to the brain where 40% of them cross the midline, another one where 60% of them cross the midline. And this is already present at birth. And it's because of the stochastic or pseudo-random nature of development, which is required because there isn't enough information in the genome to make a wiring diagram of the brain, which has a lot of cells that are very highly interconnected with each other. You're talking about trillion, one to four trillion connections, or even in the organs as well, which is why the liver varies in size from identical twin or identical quadruplet in the armadillo case. But that's a slightly different story, right? So the, the Japanese sweat gland story is one where the if-then instructions say, if you're exposed to this environment at a young age, then you'll have this particular expression of the gene. If you're exposed to this environment, you'll get a different expression. But that's separate from sort of the, the stochastic differentiation which takes place which is there's no if then it's just adding in kind of an error term which leads to divergence right that's right so the, you're absolutely correct these are different things so if you're going to take the phrase nature versus nurture and then try to make it correct i don't really have a problem with nature because nature is just a poetic way to say heredity that's what people mean in this context so that's fine that's poetic language but let's just say it's heredity interacting with experience. Now, there's two changes here. First, it's interacting instead of versus. So these things aren't intention. There, there are times when heredity and experience work together to achieve an end. So, for example, if you're born speedy and you can run fast, then you're more likely to play sports a lot and practice and get coaching, which is going to be able to make you run even faster. That's not heredity versus experience, that's heredity working together with experience to make a trait even stronger. So heredity interacting with experience. So what's experience? Like when we say nurture is like how your parents raised you, or maybe how your parents in your community raised you. But experience is a much broader term. Not only is it experience outside of the family, but it's experience in the broadest sense. It's not just social experience. It's things like the temperature in your early years of life, whether your mother was fighting off infections when you were in utero, what time of year you were born, all of these things are kinds of experience. What foods did you eat in the early part of your life? What foods did your mother eat when she was carrying you? What odors did you experience and what cultural attachments did you place on them? These, this is experience broadly. So now we've got nature versus nurture to heredity interacting with experience. But then the last part that I would tack on as filtered through the pseudo-random process of development. 
And I skipped to the last part in which I was just saying about the identical twins and the armadillos. So if you like, now we can turn to the issue that I think you care about more, which is experience broadly constrained. And I think we've alluded, so we should tell your listeners what we mean when we keep talking about sweating Japanese soldiers. <laughs> yes. So I'll tell the story. In the early days of the Second World War, the Japanese military had tremendous success in Asia. And they invaded a portion of China and Vietnam and Malaysia, Singapore. They defeated the British army there. They rolled into Burma and they got a little ways into India and they just seemed unstoppable. And one of the things, though, that was a big problem for the Japanese army was that soldiers were succumbing to heat stroke. They were falling down there in the tropical environment. And Japan is a country that's oriented north to south. So Hokkaido in the north is a pretty chilly place. They have big snowy winters. It's right next to Siberia. So you can imagine it's a pretty chilly place. The middle uh, main island, Honshu, has a rather temperate climate. By the time you get to Kyushu in the far south, it's semi-tropical there, right? You even have coral reefs off the end of Kyushu. And then by the time you get to Okinawa, you're in the real tropics. So there are Japanese soldiers that come from all kinds of different places. And what they found was that the soldiers that had the biggest problem with heat stroke were the soldiers who came from the north. What they did is they took skin biopsies of the different soldiers in the different parts of Japan. And they found that in the northern soldiers, there weren't fewer total sweat glands in the skin, but there were fewer sweat glands that were controlled by nerves coming from the brain. And these are the sweat glands that allow you to sweat in response to elevated temperature and cool your body down. So the northern soldiers weren't as good sweaters. And you might just think, oh, okay, this is because people lived there for a long time and they got adaptations to a cold climate and then that changed their DNA and they're not as good sweaters anymore. That would be the classic genetic explanation. Whereas in the South, people live there for a long time, they need to be good sweaters. That doesn't seem to be it because if they dug, when the, the scientists in the Japanese army dug in a little more carefully, they found that soldiers who were from long-standing northern families who moved south and then had their child, that what mattered was where the child lived in the first year or two of life. So you get imprinted with that environment, that temperature, during those years of life. So the change isn't a genetic one. It's not changing your genes. It's not changing your DNA. It's changing how those genes are expressed by attaching molecules to the genes, molecules called methyl groups or molecules called acetyl groups that can be attached to the proteins that DNA winds around. Both of these things control how genes are expressed. And this process is what we call epigenetics, meaning it works on the DNA but it doesn't actually change the DNA, and so you don't pass it on to your descendants. It only affects you. And there, there's some evidence that epigenetics, epigenetic expression is heritable. We see some evidence that the life experiences of your grandparents can trickle down to the, the grandchildren. Total bullshit. It's wrong. Yeah, you would think by reading the science sections of magazines that it were true, but it's not. Every one of those studies is statistically flawed. They're all based on correlations from epidemiologic data 
And what they do is they just go fishing. They correlate every possible thing with every possible thing for every possible trait. When you do that, you're going to get some errors. And statistically, there are corrections for this. One of them is known as Bonferroni's correction. And if you apply these statistical corrections, these studies, all these effects just go away. So epigenetics is real. Like what your mother experiences when you're in utero can affect you. What you experience in your life can affect you. But while there is transgenerational epigenetic inheritance in plants and maybe in some invertebrate animals, so far, the evidence in mammals is really weak. And when you think for a moment, what has to happen? If you have, if your grandpa has trauma and that's got to get to you through the DNA, how does your grandpa's trauma encoded in their brain get to your grandpa's balls to get in the sperm to then fertilize the egg of your parent? And then the whole thing has got to happen again somehow. It's got to get into, you know, the sperm or the egg. So, you know, that is a, I'm not saying it can't happen. And there are some, just a little bit of whispers right now, maybe heading in that direction, but I'm far from believing it. And the epidemiological studies are nonsense. Yeah. And I think you, you spend some time talking about the difficulties in teasing apart things that are a result of shared experience and things that are inherited through genetics. And you talk about some of the twin studies, which are super famous. And you mentioned the gyms and these, I think people still, when they think of twin studies, they think of the gyms, even if they don't remember that there were these specific gyms. But anecdotally, when people talk about identical twins, marrying someone who has the same name and both have rubber band collections and stuff like this, and then they want to assign kind of probabilities to different traits in terms of where they come from. Why is it so difficult to tease apart shared experience, the impact of shared experience and the impact of genetic inheritance? Even these twins that are in separate environments, those environments are very similar, right? I mean, both of these gyms were in kind of middle-class households in, in Ohio. And so presumably their environments were very similar. So you're absolutely right. So there is uh the gyms are part of a large study called MISTRA, the Minnesota Study of Twins Reared Apart. And they studied both monozygotic twins and also regular fraternal twins reared apart. And they studied a lot of them. And they didn't actually know who was who in almost every case until, the, until they'd actually done all their analysis. They blinded themselves to this. Now, in a couple of cases, they didn't. They had, I think, something like 72 monozygotic twin pairs, and they were probably blind in 65 or so of them. And so, you're absolutely right that twins reared apart are not usually reared in completely different environments because, you know, adoption agencies work in one place, and it's not like, you know, one kid's going to likely get adopted in California and the other one in Uruguay, you know, it's, you're not seeing that. So that is a bit of a confound. When you look at twins, monozygotic twins reared together, there's a lot of argument. Some people will say, when you have monozygotic twins, parents tend to treat them more similarly than if they were fraternal twins and look different. And actually, though, when you put that assertion to observation, uh, when you actually have people in the homes watching how people treat their monozygotic twins. That's not true. They don't treat them any more or less different than they do their fraternal twins. And these estimates of heritability from twin studies, the good ones, are based on comparing the incidence in monozygotic twins versus fraternal twins. 
And by seeing the differences of a trait there, you can, there are formulas you can use to then estimate the heritability for that trait. But I think the other thing that's important to realize about estimates of heritability is that they only work within one population. Like they don't work all over everywhere. So remember a moment ago when I said that height was 80% heritable in the USA? Well, it is. But height, if you go to Bolivia, rural Bolivia, where everybody's poor, or rural India, where most people are poor, it isn't 80% heritable. Now it's 50% heritable. Why? Because in those cases, situations, people don't get enough nutritious food. They're oftentimes exposed to uh, environmental insults from chemicals that are in the home or the workplace. They don't have the opportunity to thrive in the way that someone in a more affluent situation would. And as a result, they can't live up to their genetic potential for height. So as a result, the heritability of height becomes lower in those populations. So when you hear something like shyness is a 40% heritable trait, well, it's 40% heritable in the population they measured it in. There isn't going to be a population where it's 0% heritable, and there's not going to be a population where it's 100% heritable, right. but might be one where it's 30% heritable or 60% heritable. So basically, if the environment that all of these individuals is experiencing is, has a wide amount of variability, then, of course, that's going to account for more of the variability in the trait. And if the environment that they're experiencing is, is somewhat you know, less variable, then it's going to account for, for less, explain less of the variability of the trait, right? That's generally correct, but it's sort of speci- it's different for each trait. Okay. Yeah. Cause I think that's a statistical insight that a lot of people, a lot of people forget about. I mean, just, you know, simply when you're doing a regression and you're trying to figure out like, okay, how much variability is explained by this variable? It's like, you know, it really kind of depends on the uh, ecology of inputs. You know, the other thing that's important to realize is sometimes it's a lot easier to kind of break a process than it is to make a process function to a greater degree. And height is a great example of this, right? So all over the world, in different places, there are pygmy populations. I, now, you might wince at the word pygmy and think, isn't there a more politically correct word than that? I actually looked around. I don't think there is. Uh, it seems to be the accepted term. So there are unusually small populations. They're present in certain places in West Africa and Southern Africa and in the South Sea Islands and in continental Asia, there are a number of these populations. If you say, oh, okay, well, you just told me that height is a trait that's produced by tiny variations in a thousand genes. So does this mean that these folks in these populations are all small because there's a general change in a thousand genes? No, actually, it turns out not. It turns out that the pygmy trait is produced by rare mutations in a handful of genes. And they're not the same genes in every pygmy population around the world. They can be different in different populations. But it's, to me, an interesting point that I think is relevant to what you're saying. And that is, even a highly polygenic trait, you can break it with one or two genes. Another example is IQ test score. IQ test score is also a hugely polygenic trait. Thousands of genes contribute. Yeah, there are single genes, almost all of which are involved in synaptic transmission in the brain, that can break that trait and produce intellectual disability. And so 
even though for almost everyone in the world, 99.9% of the people in the world, IQ test score is the genetic portion of it, which is roughly 40%, is produced by the some small effects of a thousand genes, you can break it with just one or two genes. Now, you, to get back to this idea of randomness and how even if you have identical genes and, and a virtually identical environment, you're still going to find these individual traits emerge. And it's a purely random process. And you mentioned in the book, it's imagining thousands of generations happening within the single organism. And each time the cells divide, there's the, an opportunity for a slight variation to kick in. And so by the time you're born, you've already had so many different cell divisions that there has been an enormous opportunity for, for randomness to creep in, right? So I think just to be clear to your readers, you're actually talking about something different than what I was talking about a moment ago. Okay. What you're talking about is somatic mutation. Yeah. And so what I was talking about is with the same genes, you can get different outcomes because development when cells are dividing and moving and some of them are dying even before birth and they're sending connections here and there, there's a random aspect to that. And you've brought up Another thing that contributes to randomness, which is entirely different, which is uh, somatic mosaicism. And that is when you have cells just happen to randomly develop a mutation when they divide, and then they can pass that mutation on to their progeny. So it happens early in development. You can get a whole group of cells. Remember the uh, port wine stain on Mikhail Gorbachev's head, right? That's a perfect example of somatic mosaicism. So early in development, he had a, uh, a mutation in one of the cells that contributes to that. And then the progeny, the map of the progeny is the shape of the port wines. So it turns out that you, we can now in the last, oh, you know, five to 10 years measure the entire genome of single cells. And so if you go someplace like the brain and you take, say, a hundred neurons, they don't, they're all coming from the same person. Theoretically, they should have the exact same sequence of bases in their DNA, but they don't because of this somatic mutation process. And so that is yet another contributor to individuality. In truth, we don't really know how much it contributes for a lot of traits. Yes, you can find these differences in cells in the brain, but how often does that contribute to some trait? There's good evidence that for certain forms of unexplained epilepsy, this kind of somatic mutation of dividing cells in the development of the brain actually can contribute to this disease. But that's a rarity. Most of the time, we really don't know what this variation does. We imagine that it contributes to important traits, but most of that we haven't figured out. And so I want to turn a bit to the brain. And this you do spend some time in this book, Unique. Of course, you spent quite a bit of time in Accidental Mind talking about this idea of brain plasticity. And you talk about how as we grow and develop, the connections in our brain change. And you mentioned there's two different ways that this could happen. One would be where the, the strength of the signal gets uh, stronger or, or weaker. And the other is that the actual connections strengthen or weaken. So, I mean, this gives us an enormous, this, the amount of variation that's possible, given the number of cells that we have in the brain, is, it's almost infinite. So, yeah, I mean, the numbers get very big. We have the best estimate for the number of neurons in the human brain is uh, 86 billion in an adult. 
right? On average, each neuron receives about 5,000 connections from other neurons. So when you multiply that, you get a hell of a big number. And so, yeah, synaptic connections between the brain are numerous and they become a very rich substrate to encode experience, some of the, of which we will, will call memories. But it's not all memories, right? So for example, children, when they're born, need to have uh, visual information get to the brain in order to wire up the visual system properly. And if they, you know, have eye patches or something, they don't get that information to a critical period where the visual brain is organizing itself. And then if you provide that later, it doesn't help because the brain is crop is out of that developmental plastic period. And now the visual information will not be nearly as effective in guiding the proper wiring of the brain. So this experience effects on the brain, yeah, some of it is for laying down memory and some of it for other stuff like developmental plasticity. And in terms of what you're talking about earlier, I think what you're, if I am correct, what you're referring to is my pointing out that in the brain, you know, there are these many synaptic connections, which are where chemical information is sent from one neuron to another. And then that chemical information is translated into electrical signals, which are called spikes or action potentials. And they travel down the information-sending end of the neuron called the axon, and then they call, trigger neurotransmitter release out of synapse onto yet another neuron in the chain. So besides changing synapses, experience can also change the mechanisms that cause the generation or the inhibition of the generation of that. And these changes aren't occurring at the synapse. They are occurring in other parts of the neuron, and they involve proteins in the membrane called voltage-sensitive ion channels that are important for either suppressing or producing the spike. Right. And so, yeah, computationally, it's very important because you can change one synapse at a time in a neuron that might have 200,000 synapses like a cerebellar Purkinje cell. So that's very informationally rich. But if you change the part of the Purkinje neuron that generates the spike that sends it out to the next neuron, then you're changing the throughput from all 200,000 of those inputs, right? So it's a different kind of cruder form of experience changing the brain. And what we now know is that these forms work together to encode information. And so you talk about memory and how memory is not designed for accuracy, but it's designed for functionality. And so when we think about our individuality, we think about who we are as people, and we're walking around in a, in, in a world of memory where we not only remember facts and, and events, but we remember skills, we remember how to react, we remember how to respond to information. And this is a source of individuality because individuals experience different things. They're going to have different memories as a result. And a lot of these, I mean, we talk a lot about the memories that we can recall memories for facts and, and events, uh, and autobiographical memory. But a lot of our memory has to do with things that we can't recall. Like when you practice a sport and you get better at it, you can recall maybe your tennis lessons, but you don't really recall how to hit the ball better. It is a subconscious experience. Likewise, you may have been traumatized as a child by an aggressive dog. And now as an adult, every time you see a dog, your heart races. And it's not like you necessarily remember the experience as a child, but that reaction, that association, that, that fear learning is there at a subconscious level. So all the, you're right, all these things form us as individuals, both the memories 
that are declarative that we can recall and the non-declarative memories that are subconscious but are so very important for how we live in the world. You, you, at the beginning of the book, you talk about how you know, one inspiration for the book was how you found your, your wife on OkCupid. Okay and this sort of set in motion some thinking about where did these preferences come from? Not just preferences for mates, but also in the profile that and, you, and your wife posted, you had a whole list of preferences. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the origin of these preferences and the extent to which this story informs the book. So, yeah, I mean, the story is that, you know, I found myself single in middle age. And as people do these days, I went online to OkCupid and I answered a bunch of questions and wrote a little answered questions about myself. And people choose different things to write. They, everybody seems to write about what foods they like or dislike, as if that's important. I don't know. I never, if I read a woman's profile, I'm not saying, oh, you like white chocolate. I, that's it. No, there's no chance there. Or I'm telling you something important about myself when I say that I despise cilantro. The truth is, for some individual preferences that people write, we know a lot about how they come about. We know that if you really like to eat lutefisk, that probably came because you grew up liking it, because there's just about no other way to like it. It doesn't seem to be genetic related. It doesn't seem to have to do with what taste or smell receptors, uh, variants you have. It's something that's socially encoded in your experience. Likewise, if you were to say, I've always been an early bird all my life, that is heavily genetically infected. That's a highly uh, heritable trait. And we know a lot about the genes that contribute to people who like to rise early or rise late, or people who are short sleepers or long sleepers. Those things are separate, and we know rather a lot about that. In a few cases for food preferences, one really could track it down to genetics. So there are heritable differences. For example, there are some people who cannot detect the basic taste called umami, as you probably know. He has a kind of meaty flavor that's present in meats and broths and a lot of fermented things like miso, Parmesan cheese. That sort of stuff. Caramelized onions all have umami flavor. There are some people who detect umami very sensitively, and there are a few people who don't detect umami at all. And so that's going to really affect what foods you like. Generally speaking, food preference has some heritable things that we can trace mostly to your odorant receptors and a few of them to your taste receptors. But most of it is socially determined. You go to Thailand, it's pretty hard to find someone who doesn't like chili peppers. Whereas if you're walking around Baltimore, you'll find plenty of people who don't like chili peppers. So humans, I mean, on, you have a chapter called We're the Anti-Pandas. And pandas have a pretty hardwired uh, preference for bamboo and, and not a whole lot else. And humans have this kind of if-then structure where, you know, if you're eating a whole bunch of stuff, you develop a taste for it. If it's if you're in an environment where you're not really exposed to this stuff, then you don't really develop as much of a taste for it, at least within certain ranges of food categories. But you also mentioned that a lot of animals have lost a taste for something, right? So dolphins have lost the their capacity to taste things that are sweet. But the machinery is presumably still there in, in some way, right? It's kind of lost over time, but there are echoes or pseudogenes that are still present that remind us that they once had this capacity. That's right. So if you were to look, for example, at a cat, and by cat, any kind of cat, a house cat, a tiger, or a jaguar, or what have you, 
they don't have the ability to taste sweet. There's a specific receptor for sweet that involves two different genes that's in the tongue. Now, if you go look in the cat genome, you can see like the rusted hulks of those genes in the cat genome. They've been so shot full of mutations that they can't make a functional protein anymore. So at the level of the protein, at the level of your experience, of the level of what's in your tongue, the detector is gone. But you're right. The echo of it is there in these shot up mutated pseudogenes that are in your DNA. So yes, that's definitely a thing. And so it's a thing across different species, and these mutations can happen in some humans. So you're probably aware of red-green color blindness, right? Which is when you lose one of your three visual pigments. There's also a thing that rarely happens in women where they get a mutation in one of their visual pigment genes that's encoded on the X chromosome, and they can actually have four different visual pigments and have a vision experience that is very atypical for humans. But I think the important thing about humans and food, and taste and smell are mostly there for food, although they're also there for a few other things, is that humans can't be too picky about their foods. If you want to occupy all the different environments on the planet, which we pretty much do from the Arctic to the tropics, and every place in between, you can't be too picky about what you're going to eat. You can't say, well, I want the Inuit diet while I'm living down here in Peru. You're not going to get it, buddy. So you got to be more flexible. So in the case of tastes, there are things that we're born hardwired with. We are hardwired to like sweets. We're hardwired to like a little bit of salt, but not too much salt. We're hardwired to dislike strong bitter tastes, but we can come to like moderate bitter tastes. And this sort of thing is heavily culturally influenced. But when it comes to odors, it's surprising. There are so few odors, for example, that we're born being averse to. That we, like if you take a baby and you, you put a sweet solution on their tongue, they like it right away in a newborn. But babies, as all parents know, are not averse to the smell of poop. They have to be taught that. You might think, oh my God, poop is so awful and you don't really want it around you. Wouldn't you have an inbred aversion to poop? And the answer is no. Actually, you don't. And the reason we don't is because we want an olfactory system in humans that is as flexible as possible, that has relatively little hardwired into it. And so there are a few odorants that we're born to dislike. One of them, they actually have great names, putrescine, cadaverine. These are polyamine molecules that come from rotting meat. There's another one called triethylamine that is a rotting fish smell. And even a baby will go like this to those odors. But most odors, you can come to like in the appropriate circumstances related to foods. And there are some odors that we just can't get beyond, but as a hakarl eater in Iceland will tell you, where it has a fermented shark that has a strong ammonia odor, you'd think, oh, who would possibly actually enjoy eating that? People can do it because our human olfactory system was built to be so flexible. So you have a couple of chapters on sexual distinctions, sex distinctions, gender distinctions. You have a chapter on sexual preferences. I think just like the distinction between kind of nature and nurture, the popular conceptions of these 
issues, the way biologists think about them and the way uh, neuroscientists think about them is probably a bit distorted. And you actually talk a bit about some of the, the perils of getting into this in this domain because of the ways in which things can be be misinterpreted. Do you think that people are, since people think about kind of the political and social ramifications of this area of research, it makes it more difficult to think about kind of gender differences and uh, sexual preferences as a biologist? Well, sure it does. I mean, I think we, given that pseudoscientific ideas about sex differences and about how sexual orientation comes about have been used to oppress people for so long in so many different places. I think you got to be meticulous and you got to be really careful when you're talking about this work. And I've really tried to be in the book, but I'm sure I've made some mistakes too. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Everybody who works on this knows how this work can be misinterpreted, used to political ends. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge that. And to kind of get into one of the key issues having to do with sexual orientation is that it's in men, and by men I mean cisgender men, there's roughly uh, 40% of the variation in sexual orientation seems to be heard. Now, that's a reasonable chunk, but it's far from the whole story. And what the rest of the story is, I think the real shocking thing is that, like, how your parents raise you has nothing to do with it at all. There is no, the American Psychological Association did a uh, meta-analysis of the literature, and there was no indication that anything about how your parents raise you it can affect how you think about your sexuality. You know, if you're raised in a conservative Christian household and you have same-sex urgings, you may well feel like you want to suppress them, but it doesn't make the urgings not happen. So what is the 60%? We know a little bit, like we know, for example, that females who are exposed to, to androgens, male hormones in the womb, are more likely to be attracted to women when they are born and then grow up. But that's almost certainly accounts for a small fraction of the remaining 60%. The rest of it is, we don't know. Some of it may be random stochastic variation. And the interesting thing is that we should really think about sexual orientation, not in terms of, am I attracted to people the same sex as me or a different sex as me, as we should say, attracted to men, attracted to women. Because while, for example, having a gay brother increases the probability that you will be gay yourself if you are male, it has no influence on whether or not, if you're female, you'll be attracted to females and the vice versa, right? If you have a gay sister as a female, it increases your chance that you also will be attracted to women. But if you are a male and it is your gay sister, that doesn't change your probability. So these are separate biological attraction to males and attraction to females are separate biological processes. There doesn't seem to be a biological process that is attracted to like me or different. And then, of course, I'm being very simplified here because male and female, as we now know from a lot of discussion, are not bright line divisions. We used to think, oh, everybody is X 
chromosome, sex chromosomes, they're going to be female. Everybody is XY male. No, that's just not true. Because you can have mutations in the sex hormone producing or degrading genes or the receptors for them or in other things where they don't relate to it. And you can get all kinds of intersex conditions. You can have women who have internal testes and they are raised as females and feel female. And it's only like when they never get their period that they go, hey, what's wrong? And they go to the doctor and they do a scan and they say, whoops, you don't have ovaries. You got testes that didn't drop down there. And that's what's going on. And there are a whole bunch of ways for intersex conditions to arrive. And this, it's among biologists, it's not a debate at all. It's not political science at all. It's just the damn facts. Well, it seems as a culture, we're becoming more comfortable with the idea that uh, some of these dichotomies might not be uh, complete, right? The male-female dichotomy. But only in parts of the culture. I mean, you know, go to the Southern Baptist Convention that they just finished having and say that and you'll probably convince no one. But most people still want to cling to this dichotomy of whether something is natural or nurtural, right? Whether it's heritable or chosen to some extent. And Every this, behavioral trait is both. Yeah. There's not a single behavioral trait that exists that is not partially heritable. And generally speaking, the range for behavioral traits, heritability, is from like 20% to 60%. 95% of behavioral traits their heritability will fall somewhere within that range. So there are traits that are more or less heritable, but all of them are at least a little heritable and none of them are completely heritable. None of them are completely heritable. They all rely on some other thing, whether it is experiential or developmental randomness or somatic mosaicism or other things we haven't even discussed yet. So I think that a lot of the people who would be buying this book are, are trying to answer the question, how did I become who I am? How, I, I want to know myself and I want to know how I came to be and I want to know whether it was something that was in my genes or something that I got from how I was brought up. And, and I'm, I'm suspecting a lot of people will be uncomfortable with stochastic processes and you know, mosaicism and the nuance and the, and the complexity that I think you highlight is for some people going to be disappointing. For me, I found it fascinating. I found it to be super interesting and I enjoyed it. And it's the way in which you described it. And it just stimulated more interest on, on my part. I wish we had time to chat about these other books, but as you said, the best way to get to know these books is probably just is to read them. So I recommend that people go out and read them. So David, Unique, New Science of Human Individuality, highly recommended. Also, I enjoyed this book here, Touch the Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind, and this one, which I think is a classic, The Accidental Mind, which is the one that I read first and turned me on to your work. And I appreciate you joining me today, David. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun, and I appreciate your support. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www dot unsiloedpodcast.com.